Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. In my first conversation on last week's episode with Megan, she talked about being part of an avant-garde theater company where she was given the idea, as a lot of people are given, unfortunately, that unless you put up with very bad behavior, you will never have a career in that business, whatever that business is. And she talked about how she was taken advantage of in every way and had her sensitive information extracted from her in kind of clever ways and then used against her as a means of control and how the director manufactured within his theater a drama, within a drama as I see it, of conflict and competition, abuse, threats, and zero boundaries. Today we get to hear from Megan again where she talks about going to the police and how dismissive they were which I am so frustrated to hear about over and over and over again in these situations, and how her theater director's suicide threats were used as a manipulation, and also what the catalyst was for her finally leaving and what her life is like now. I really look forward to having you hear the continuation of her story today. Here's Megan. So I took a lot of notes while you were talking because I wanted to come back to this idea of the the irony to me, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, of the idea of somebody manufacturing drama in a theater company, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yes. We're famous for this. This is what we do. (laughs) Okay. So I think when you have that, when you have someone manufacturing drama, that you are not necessarily going to have a way to differentiate, like you're saying, if it's for your benefit or not, or if it's part of it or not, if it's to push you or not. But then when someone is deliberately setting up a conflict or a competition, and also in retrospect, you find out that the same lies are being told to to both of you. Um, I'm wondering, and I want you to be able to come back to where you were in the story, but just, I'm wondering as you're talking, was anyone else noticing who was part of the theater company? Um, most of the people in the play at the time were not company members. Um, it, the company members were me, Jeremy, and Anna. Um, a couple of the actors they, you know, they had worked with once or twice before. Um, the woman who was pitted against me, um, she remembers, I mean, well, everybody who was in that dressing room remembers me being just an absolute punching bag. I was just screamed at constantly. Um, you know, I, I don't remember again, any of the specifics only because it was so frequent it all blends together. And frankly, I was trying to block it out because I had a job to do. I had to go on stage, but you know, he, he I, you know, I'd be called names and just blamed for everything. And the woman who was pitted against me, she, she told me afterwards that, even though she had been conditioned to dislike me and to not trust me, she would hear them laying into me and be like, God, I'm glad that's not me. Right. There is a sense of relief when someone else is on the hot seat. Cause you know, if it's in, in an environment like that, if it's, if it's somebody else and it's not you and mm-hmm. you get a little reprieve. Um, and you can also see how awful it is when someone else is treated that way. You don't want it to happen to you. It, it's also very hard because you then are not protected 
by the other people there and you can feel abandoned or betrayed. I absolutely felt that way. And then again, when I circled back much, much later to talk to those people, they said, you know, oh God, what what happened to you was awful. But again, he's in charge and nobody wants to get a reputation and everybody's just like, I just want to put my head down. I want to get through this run and I'm never coming back here. But everybody's just trying to get through it as best they can with a minimum of insanity and then they'll just leave, which meant that nobody had any incentives to stick up for me. Right. Okay. So another situation where you felt alone. Very much so. I, and that, I, I believe that was very deliberate um, because as time went on, um, there were other people who were made company members, but I was kept very separate from them as well. Well, and I was treated so badly that every show I thought, I can't handle this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. I'm going to finish the show and I'm never coming back. But then they would say, oh, well, you can have this amazing part in the next show. And I would be like, oh, fuck, I really want to do that show. Okay, I'm going to do that show and then I'm done and I'm never coming back. And so that's how they kept me in. Eventually, the tipping point was when my husband found out about Jeremy and Anna. And then that's when his abuse became not just sexual, but it became physical. Um, and I, it went on for a period of weeks. Um, it was very, I mean, he would threaten to kill me every day. He would smash my phone so that they couldn't call me and that I couldn't call anybody else. Um, he tried to strangle me several times in front of our child who was, two and a half at the time, um, would threaten to kidnap my child away to the country where he was from and find him a better mother. Uh, you know, he got vi- physically violent several times. And then eventually um, I did, I called the, the cops a few times, but it was always after the fact. And they, they did point me to a domestic violence resource in my community that I could walk to because I didn't have a car. I didn't have access to money. So it's not like I could just go buy a train ticket or a bus ticket because my then husband controlled all the money and um, I didn't have access. Right. So that, vi- that domestic violence advocate told me, she said, okay, well, I want you to call, I want you to file police reports with the police. You, um, you don't have to press charges, but just have them on file so that when you are ready to leave, when you are ready to divorce him and, and try to get custody, all that stuff is on the record. And he can't just say that you're making it up to, you know, to get, to gain an advantage in your, in your divorce and custody case. So I said, okay. So I call the police to try to make, um, a report and me not having any idea how any of this worked. I was so naive. I was like, well, I wanted to file an information only police report because my husband uh, raped me and he smashed my phone and he threatened to kill me. Well, I didn't realize that you can only do that for misdemeanors. You can't do that for felonies and rape is a felony. Mm-hmm. So they transferred me to a different officer and I tried to explain what I was trying to do. And he says, wait a minute. So you're telling me that your husband raped you and it was a week ago. Why are you crying? What? He said, why are you crying? Yeah. Oh, no. 
So then I said, okay, you know what? Never mind. I've changed my mind. I will not be filing after all. Thank you. Oh, okay. um, eventually, though, there was there was a, a time when I felt like I did have to call them because I felt like I was in immediate danger. Um, he smashed my head into the wall, and I was holding my or the door, and I was holding my son. And so my son's head hit the door too. And they started trying, they started kicking me and I tried to roll over onto my son so that he wouldn't kick my son. And at that time, I felt like I had no other choice but to call the police because I felt like my life was in danger. Um, and then so, that they, so then he finally got arrested and I did, you know, file for divorce. And then um, he wasn't allowed to be around me. I had, did have an order of protection for a while. But that was the tipping point with Jeremy and Anna too, because... I couldn't be at my house because when I went to the domestic violence courthouse and they rolled my order of protection case into the criminal case against him for domestic battery, um, they said, now, I mean, go home and get your stuff, but before he, but be gone before he bonds out, because this is the time that he's most likely to kill you. Don't be where he can find you. So I wasn't, I had to hide out for a couple of weeks until I felt safe enough to go back and get clothes and diapers and remember I had been at home with my son so I didn't work I didn't have any money he emptied the bank account which he wasn't allowed to do but he did it anyway and I still needed to feed my child and so what was I supposed to do until I went to court and filed an emergency order to get him to put the money back and during all that the only source of support I had was Jeremy and Anna because my friends all thought that I was the bad guy because I had cheated on my husband. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering. I was wondering why these people were going to seem like your only form of support. So you did try to go talk to your friends and they judged you. Right. And I, when I told them that my husband had raped me because the way I interpreted it is that he felt like my body was his property and that you know, Jeremy had taken his property and he wanted to reclaim it. My friend said, well, you know what? We're friends with both of you. We like you both. We don't want to take sides. Right. That happens way too often, way too often that people, I think people think they're being fair-minded. And I think they think also that they don't want to create any waves, but they don't realize um how abandoning they're being in the moment of someone reaching out and taking that risk. I know it's, I mean, like, yes, I made bad choices. I did. And believe me, I beat myself up for it every single day, but how is him raping me? Not a deal breaker for you. Right. <laughs> yeah, it should be. It should be for everybody. So I, so I had nobody except Jeremy and Anna. Mm -hmm. They were the, I was dependent on them for money to buy groceries. Um, I, of course, you know, since I had, was leaving my husband, I needed to get a job. I didn't have any work clothes. Jeremy bought them for me. You know, I, I was dependent on them for everything. I'm curious also, as you're talking, was your family, and I don't know if you had family, but was your family aware of what was going on? Oh God. Um, my Yes, my family eventually became aware. My husband called them to tell them what I had done to him. And my father said, don't you dare call me. There is nothing that you have to say that I want to hear. My mother agreed that I was at fault because I had cheated on him. 
And so I was in the middle at that point of an issue with the court, because even though I had an order of protection that was done by criminal court and they can't keep him away from his son because that's a family court issue and nobody wants to touch that. And then family court doesn't want to do anything because the criminal case isn't resolved yet and was an awful mess. And I'm just sitting here like, I just don't want to be murdered by, by this man. And so he was using the court system. He was just filing motion after motion after motion after motion in family court to try to get what he wanted from me and to see my son. And then therefore, to because he was so little, to force me to interact with him in order to facilitate visitation. My mother wrote an affidavit in support of him, though, because she felt like my decision to cheat on my husband was unforgivable. And um, I haven't spoken to her since. And that was six years ago. Okay. And I, I hear about this, this part of your story a lot where the person who has a history of being abusive, as soon as they feel that they've been slighted in some way, that then they share that information as soon as they can before you have a chance to talk about what's been happening to you for years. Right. And then, then when I try to tell my side, then everybody gets all both sidesy and, oh, well, we don't want to get involved. Like, oh, everybody's made some bad choices. So, so here you only had them to rely upon and to have as a means of support in every way. I'm wondering also just about your relationship with your son. I mean, did you feel that you were able to enjoy just your time with him and being able to feel safer once your husband was no longer your husband and he was out of the house or not? Well, I mean, the divorce process took two years and it was very awful. Um, I was able to preserve my relationship with my son. Um, He was small when it happened. And so even though he witnessed it and he unfortunately was in the middle of the violence in that last incident, he didn't, he doesn't remember it now. He was two and a half. And I have remained his primary caregiver and I have full legal custody of him now that the divorce is final. Um, his dad does have visitation. Uh, for a while, we did what's called a safe exchange where there is an agency specifically set up for situations like this, where I would go in one door with my son and a social worker would take my son and she would physically walk him to the other side of the building where he would go in a different door. Um, And then he would have to stay there for 15 minutes so I could get out of there without being followed. And then they would let him go. You know, it was a whole thing. Um, I fortunately do still have a really good relationship with my son, but it is very hard for him because he's a little kid and he loves his parents. And I don't want to talk shit about his dad because even though I don't like his father and his behavior, that's still his father. And I remember when my parents got divorced, my parents would just snipe at each other and they would just complain about the other one to me. And I felt very in the middle because I was just a little kid and I just, and I loved my parents and I didn't want to take sides. And I felt like I was being forced to take sides. And I didn't want to put my kid in that position. So it was hard. Right. I, which I think is incredibly hard to do. And you can feel like you're being overly generous, but you are doing it for your child. It's very important. There's a children's book that I put together uh, for children. Actually, it, it, a lot of the, the content comes from the kids I work with who are children from divorced households. And it's... Um, It's called Now I Know Kids Talking to Kids About Divorce. And one of the things that kept coming up 
was that they were talking about how absolutely uncomfortable it made them when one parent was complaining about the other parent, but also sometimes it would make them feel protective towards one parent and not the other. And so it would work against the effort sometimes of the one who had really been harmed, who was just sharing their frustration about the other parent. And so it, it becomes very messy. And so I think the tack that you're taking is actually really the best one for kids. It, it's difficult and it doesn't always work, especially when his father tries to paint me as the bad guy. But and I did have to take my son to, um, I guess, I guess a kind of therapy, even though he was very little, because um, despite him being so young, when he witnessed the, the violence, um, because it wasn't just one incident, it was several incidents for a couple of years when he would get really, really upset. He would put his hands around his neck because he, around my neck, I mean, because he had seen his father do that to me. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So we had to go to therapy and work through that. Wow, that's very powerful. Coming back to your story then. Right. So at that point, I was emotionally dependent on Jeremy and Anna, and I was financially dependent on them. Also, I was... So I had the first thing, the first job that I could get was a part-time job. It wasn't enough to pay my bills. And so they were helping me kind of fill in the gaps. And also because of this, I didn't have childcare and I couldn't really perform anymore. I was able to perform a little bit because there was a one woman show that I had been doing for years, kind of on and off with the company. And so we kind of figured out a way for me to do that, like on a monthly basis, um, so I could continue to perform. And it was a very, very well-reviewed show. Um, and so it always brought in money and um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was really great, but I couldn't do it every weekend, nor would we really want to. Um, so I got to do that. And then so they said, okay, well, you know, we need help for other shows. You can do costumes because I've been, I've done costumes for you can do the photography and the graphic design and, um, and also you could help with the administrative stuff because uh, up until this point, you know, as a nonprofit theater company, you're supposed to, as you had 501c3 status, a nonprofit status, in order to have that status, you're supposed to have a board of directors and you're supposed to have all this stuff. And it was all just really a formality. Jeremy was the president of the board. It, it, it was all just for show. There was those people didn't really have any input. Mm -hmm. Um, and in, in addition, we didn't really have any like major grants where the funders would then come in and, um, kind of ask for records or ask for documents. Um, it was really just a seat of the pants. We were dependent on, um, ticket revenue and ticket revenue alone is not enough to sustain. You, you have to have a mix of ticket revenue, grants, and donations in mm -hmm. order to actually have a a theater that runs. And we didn't have that. Um, we did have a couple of super fans who then became basically donors. And so when we couldn't make rent, they would pay our rent for us. But really it was the Jeremy and Anna show. They controlled everything. And so when, you know, Jeremy is doing the writing and the directing and the starring, and then Anna is doing the acting and the costumes and the marketing and the press releases and all of the social media, it, it became too much. It was overwhelming. So they said, why don't we do this? We'll make you the director of marketing and development, and you can do some of the administrative stuff so that Anna's not overwhelmed. And then you get this nice title on your resume that'll help you get a better job so you can pay your bills. And I thought, that sounds great. That works for everybody. Which, of course, it was a disaster because Anna gave me this job to do, but then she like wouldn't give me the passwords so that I could, you know, 
get into the books and apply for grants or, you know, send out press releases. It was like, well, if you want me to send out press releases, then you have to give me the list. And then she would scream at me and say, you think that I'm doing a shitty job as managing director. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to do the job that you gave me to do. Or there is one show where I was, they asked me to do costumes. And so I, I made from scratch all of these pieces. I constructed them for the show. And I show up to a rehearsal one day to make sure everything fits and, and um, people can move in them. And all of the actors are wearing different costumes. Oh, and I had yeah. replaced all of the costumes without telling me. Oh, wow. There was um, an anthology sort of play, or there's an anthology sort of show that we did. And um, Jeremy had asked me to direct one of the short plays in there. I show up for the first rehearsal. And lo and behold, so another director comes in. They replaced me without telling me. My one-woman show that I that I was supposed to do every month, anytime that Jeremy got mad at me, he would say, oh, well, I'll just cancel your show this one, this month. You know, you're, oh, these stories are so frustrating. Uh, it's reminding me, actually, of a, a couple um, I had worked with years ago. They had a very uh, large home. I guess it was a large, it's sort of a long ranch-style home. And the only reason that's important is the kitchen was on one side and the living space where people congregated was on the other. And the husband had asked his wife to make a huge elaborate meal for all this company that had come over. Uh, it was going to be a new company he was going to be working with or working for potentially, and he really wanted to impress them. And so she spent days working on this and was in the kitchen doing the finishing touches and started walking down the hallway with all of these trays and there was nobody there. And she was thinking maybe he took them in the backyard. And so she went in the backyard, nobody there. And then she noticed his car was gone and all the other people's cars were gone. And he decided, he had already planned it, that he was going to take them all out to eat. And he had made a reservation at a restaurant and didn't tell her. And she had spent days on this. It's reminding me of you working on these costumes, sewing everything, getting the materials, and then they got their costumes. And so, yeah. You hear about these stories and it's just, it's awful. And of course, I can't say anything because if I say anything like how, like I were, I, you know, worked on these and you replaced them and you didn't even tell me, well, first of all, to replace them at all is really messed up, but you didn't even talk to me about it. Like what was, what was, I couldn't do any of that because again, I would just get screamed at. And then the other, then the other people in the play would be like, you have to excuse Megan. She's 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 you know we, we, we put up with it because she's you know she's been through a lot you know her husband was really abusive and so like she gets she flies off the handle she acts kind of crazy you just have to roll with it just don't pay her no mind mm -hmm. okay yeah right so you're you're treated that way like you're the crazy one and then also while you're sewing these costumes or whatever else you were trying to do I'm sure that you were feeling the stress of knowing that you had to do a good job or you were going to get yelled at so, right. So you had that also while you were doing all of this work and then to have it not appreciated or to make it impossible for your work to, to matter is very hard. And for some people that becomes the catalyst. Like I, you know, I could, I could handle a lot of things up until a certain point. So I'm wondering what was that point for you? <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's not funny, but it's funny. So 
one of the things that Jeremy would do with all of this information he had about our traumas and our emotional buttons that he could press or the emotional strings that he could pull was not just use them against us, you know, in order to make us do what he wanted, but he also put them into his work. He would steal people's stories and then put them on stage, obviously without permission. So at one point he was writing, he was writing a book version of one of his plays. <laughs> and he, and every time he finished a chapter, he would give it to me to read and Anna to read and literally everybody, because the woman that I had been pit against in that one show, that didn't stop with her. Every show, there was a new woman who was my new competition. Um, so one day he tells me he wants me to read the book. Now he, I'm not allowed to spend any time by myself. Um, I can go to work. And then when I, and because of the court issues and I didn't want to mess up my custody case, he said, okay, well, I guess, you know, when you're with your son, you don't have to bring your son around us because that will be an instigating factor for your husband to try to get, you know, to, to take your kid away. And okay. And he knew that that was the one line that he couldn't cross. If he tried to, to interfere with my relationship with my son, he was done. He knew that if, if I had to choose between them, I was going to choose my kid. So I could, when I was with my kid, I could spend time, but the second that I dropped off my child, I had to go back to his house, to their house. And if I didn't show up within half an hour, they would blow up my phone. Where are you? Where are you? I was not allowed to spend time with other people. I was not allowed to work for other companies. There was one time when I was like, look, you know, this other company, they, they asked me to do costumes and there's a stipend and I could really use the money. And he kicked me out of the house oh, just wow. for daring to suggest it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I was at the house because I had to be. And he said, I finished this, the new chapters. So I want you to read the book. So I'm reading it. And as I'm reading, apparently my facial expressions are not happy enough. I don't know what it was, but he, he, he literally said, you're reading my book like a dick. And he locked me out of the house. Okay. I don't know how one reads a book like a dick. <laughs> and it was so absurd. Right, right. But I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. I'm done. So I went back to the house that I had shared with, I was sharing with a bunch of roommates and I gathered up like costumes that I was working on and um, paperwork for the theater and some clothes that they had bought me and a TV that they had loaned me. And I put it all in my car and I drove to the theater because at, at that time nobody was there. I dumped everything in the dressing room. And I left a note and it said, look, I love you so much, but I can't do this anymore. I can't. So I locked the door, pushed my key through the mail slot and went home and crossed my fingers. Well, what happened was that at this, something, eventually they found the stuff. They knew that they couldn't get through to me. I wasn't answering the phone. I wasn't responding to any text messages. So they blew up everybody else's phones. They emailed everybody who was in the current show. They emailed every and called and texted everybody who was in the theater company and said, we can't get a hold of Megan. We're afraid that her husband did something to her because, you know, he's really violent. Please, if you hear from her, tell us, because tell her to get into contact with us so that we know she's safe. Please help us find her. 
they came to my house and I had my son with me. And so I didn't want there to be any sort of scene. I didn't want to call the cops. I didn't frankly trust the cops very much anyway. Um, and, and I didn't want to scare my son. And so I didn't know what else to do, but I took them back. I didn't feel like I had a choice in that moment. They weren't, you know, because they, they even called me at work and they tried to talk to my boss and like, that's just, it was just beyond the pale. I could not get away from them. They would not leave me alone. They were, and, and the only way to make it stop was to take them back. So I did, I went back to them. Okay. Yeah. They really wore you down and there was so much badgering and it, it would have taken a lot of energy and also more protection, I think, really knowing that you had people who would circle around you um, to protect you, but that wasn't what was happening for you at the time. A lot of people make decisions because they don't have backup. Yeah. Uh, right. And so people will ask, well, why did you go back and why did you stay? And, and when you feel that you don't have other viable options is usually the reason. Uh, Okay. And so you went back and then what happened? Um, I, I stayed for a while longer and eventually I just became so broken down that I couldn't, I couldn't fight back for a while, but then I, then it just became, I could, I literally couldn't do anything anymore. For example, and I apologize to anybody who this triggers, but, um, so after all of the, the, the abuse and the violence from my husband, um, I was uh, diagnosed with um, PTSD and panic disorder. So I had panic attacks a lot. And um, Jeremy, I guess, had he had cast me in this role in his life as like the one who was sexy. And that made Anna feel very inadequate because she was like the quirky one, but I was like the sexy one. And so she felt very inadequate next to me. And he did that on purpose. And he just really, and he would only cast me in these like sexy roles. And I felt like that was all that I was. And so when I had panic attacks, Jeremy would tell me that the best cure for my panic attacks was to get fucked. And so while I wouldn't be able to breathe or speak, he would lead me by the hand to the bedroom and he would have sex with me. And I never even considered fighting back as an option because I couldn't even talk or breathe, much less consent to it. Um, but I mean, I couldn't even say that like, oh, hey, that thing that you said hurt my feelings. I can't, I don't, I'm not allowed to say no. And so there was one day when I was having a panic attack, I was in their apartment and he wasn't in the mood. And I was cowering in the kitchen and I was like, pressing my back against the cabinet underneath the sink. And I was just trying to make myself as small as possible. And I was trying to catch my breath. And he was, he was just leaning over me and screaming. He's a very big guy um, screaming at me. He's like, are you trying to make me take a pill? Are you trying to make me take a fucking pill? Meaning like Viagra. And he walked out of the room and into the bedroom. And I assumed to take a fucking pill. And I ran out of the apartment and I left. And this is one of those weird things that I have a lot of holes in my memory. I have, like, I remember certain like bits and certain moments, but I don't remember everything. And my brain tells me that there was something about my shoes. I could not have walked home 
without shoes because I live in, in a giant city and I would have gotten massively infected if I had tried to walk home without shoes. So I don't know what it is my brain is telling me about the shoes. Um, but I do know that, that there's, there's parts that are missing. Like I don't, I, I know that my brain is not letting me remember parts of it. And that's the same thing like with all of the, 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 the abuse that was screamed at me in the dressing room. Part of it was that it happened so frequently. And part of it was just that I couldn't, I couldn't let myself think about it because then I couldn't fucking cope. I just needed to get through the show. And now I can't remember a lot of it. I can remember how it, I felt. I can remember, I can remember waiting by the ashtray for him to come down and scream at me and then build me back up again after rehearsal. But I, I remember the waiting, but I don't remember what he said. It's, it's one of these things that drives me crazy that and, and, another, and another reason why I would never try to go to any sort of law enforcement, because I couldn't tell you what happened before he started screaming at me in the kitchen. I can't tell you what happened with my shoes. I can't tell you what time it was. I don't know any of that. I don't have that in my memory. And law enforcement would just say that I'm making it up. So what you hope is that law enforcement interacts with people who have been through this and who are going through it in a very different way than you are interacted with, but that there should be an understanding. And there is to a certain degree with some people who deal with this kind of level of abuse and or violence, that there is a dissociation that takes place that is your way of protecting yourself in that moment. So there are usually holes in people's memories and other things that stand out that seem random because it's the thing that you focused on so that you didn't have to take in the other parts that were coming at you, right? The, the things that were overwhelming you or scaring you. So sometimes someone will remember the ticking clock that was next to them rather than what was being screamed at them or that they were being hit because they had, they had to focus elsewhere. So there are always going to be these gaps in information that take place because you were just, you had adrenaline coursing through your system. And so, no, you're not going to be able to write down like a script what happened to you. You're going to remember the feeling to a certain degree. Um, and what also happens in those moments is that you often can feel paralyzed to protect yourself, to run, to get away. And like when you were talking about being in the kitchen and just trying to get as small as possible, that's usually the reaction. Can I just hide or can I make myself invisible? Can I also go somewhere else in my mind? Those are usually uh, presented in our brains as the options at the time and not necessarily acting on our own behalf or reacting or escaping. But you finally did. Yeah, I did. The next time that I tried to leave, I did, I did the same things that I did before, but instead of going home, I went to the house of, she didn't really know what was happening. She was, I, she was very nice, but I didn't know how much I could trust her at that point. Cause she was just the mother of one of my little, my kids, like preschool friends. And so I, we said, oh, we should hang out. And so I timed it so that I would be with her. 
and they didn't know who she, they didn't know her. They didn't know where she lived. So I dropped everything off and then I went to her house and I turned off my phone. And again, I was lucky enough that I didn't have my son that night. So I didn't go home because when I turned my phone back on, it was the same thing as before. We're afraid something happened to Megan. You know that her her um, husband is violent. Uh, we're afraid something happened. Calling calling my work, calling everybody in the company, all that. They came to my house, but I wasn't there. So they sat on my porch for hours waiting for me to come home. Um, they would... Um, in the, in the following days, they would say like, oh, well, we've, we've, we've been driving by your house hoping to see your car. I eventually moved so that they wouldn't know where I lived anymore. They would call me up in the middle of the night and just scream. And then I would just have to, I, I, I didn't block their numbers because after everything that happened with my husband, I wanted to be able to document everything if it came to that. And, you know, it honestly, it never stopped. They eventually stopped driving by my house and coming to my house, especially once I had moved and they didn't know where I was anymore. But Jeremy would continue to call me and text me and email me. And when I wouldn't respond, he would create a new email address or a throwaway um, phone number and contact me that way. And this went on for two years. Two years. Two years. They even, they eventually ended up moving to a different city. Um, but he still would say like, oh, I flew into town. I was really hoping to see you. And he would, he would, this, sometimes it, he would, it would be three times a day. And then sometimes it would go a month. But for two years, he would send me suicide threats and marriage proposals and pictures of his dick and it just went on. The, the only reason that it stopped was because me, me too had happened. And, um, he had gotten wind that me and, um, what ended up being five other victims of his from the theater were working on a, uh, an, with a journalist on an article about what he had done. And so five other women came forward about his behavior. And then we had six other corroborating witnesses oh, who wow. didn't identify as victims, but who had said, yes, I witnessed this behavior, Megan getting screamed at in the dressing room and whatnot. Um, so, uh, and that was, and that was just from 2012 onward. I know about some, like my predecessor, um, the, the girlfriend before me, um, she, she's still so traumatized that she can't talk about it. And so she, she declined to participate in the article and that's fine because if that's going to make things work, what's most important is that she does what helps her. And if it's not going to help her, then I don't want her to right. feel forced into it. Right. So I know that there are other people and they just you, didn't want to participate or they didn't know about it um mm -hmm. you know what was really funny is that she was a big part of it for a long time because again she was the previous girlfriend and so she had was the one who had gotten all the good roles before me before she ended up leaving and at one point Anna pulled out all of the posters from previous shows that included this woman and she cut this woman out of all of the posters and one of there was there was another other artistic associate who was there and was like oh yeah her whatever happened to her and he said her name and 
Jeremy slapped him in the face and Anna dumped a water bottle on his head just for mentioning her name. Okay. Wow. That's how vindictive they were. And that's how much I knew that I could never, ever stand up for myself. It would just, it would never, it would never end well for me. I mean, yes, it's vindictive. It's scary. Uh, it, it is also juvenile. Oh, extremely, extremely. Right? I mean, if it weren't so scary, we'd be able to sort of look at it that way. Really, like, get over yourself, you know? <laughs> right. And anytime he got upset, like, there was one time when um, there was a review that said that the play was really great, but it mentioned Jeremy's weight. And he just lost his mind and he was threatening suicide for days. And of course, all of us who are getting these suicide threats are thinking that it's ridiculous and it's probably just a manipulation tactic. But what if it's not? Right. We can't, we can't be responsible for, you know, if something, if something bad happens, we can't feel like we're responsible. So we have to take it seriously no matter what. And so he did this constantly. He would threaten suicide as a way to make us do what he wanted because he knew that, that no one wanted to take that risk. Mm-hmm. And feel responsible or feel guilty. And right, right. I mean, yeah, huge manipulation. So, so I want to also say that you going to this mom of someone in your son's class, so smart to go to this space that they're not going to be expecting you to go to also to be with someone who is not tied in with the story at all where you get to be in this neutral safe space very good idea very good idea but I'm wondering with all of this now what I mean they yes he didn't want the story to come to light and have the public know because he's been able to get away with what he's been able to get away with by kind of staying in the shadows uh, and so suddenly when the door was going to be opened and people were going to be able to look in, he didn't want that to happen. And so it made him back away. But bringing us up to the present, what's happening now with the theater company and also with you? Do they still exist? Are they still running it? No, they don't exist anymore. Once they, once they understood what was happening, they quickly shut down all the social media. They shut down the website. They kind of just hunkered down. Um, they never responded to the journalist who, um, I gave the journalist all 10 of those email addresses that he had been sending me dick pictures and suicide threats from, uh, and the journalist tried to contact him on all 10 of them and never responded. <laughs> uh, so they never, they never addressed that, but I mean, their names are, their names are out there along with the abuse. So if you, if you Google their full names, that comes up on the first page of Google search results. I mean, it's the first thing. So they won't be able to work again. And that was really what I think prompted me and the other 11 people to come forward was that they ended up moving about a year after I left them, they decamped to a different city and, you know, things kind of get around, you know, apparently they had a little bit of a reputation as being culty was the word I was told of being a, culty and unprofessional and creepy and so there was kind of a whisper network Mm -hmm. saying like oh you know don't you know don't go work with them but when they moved to a different city there was no such whisper network yeah the only thing that people would know about them is the glowing reviews from from you know my city so 
I think that was, I don't think we would have done it if it hadn't been for them moving. We were like, we, we couldn't let this happen to anybody else because they, they tended to go for young and inexperienced actresses who didn't necessarily know how out of bounds their behavior was because they didn't have a ton of experience. They're fresh out of theater school. Mm. And, you know, if they were in a new city, like there would be nothing to protect those women. Mm-hmm. And so th- that was really what pushed us to to come forward. And it was a really grueling and awful process. But now I know that they can't, they can't do this again. Right. Right. I have a question to ask about that. But first I was curious, I know I asked about them, but what are you doing now? Oh, um, I don't act anymore. <laughs> um, maybe one day I'll get, I'll get back to it, but I you know, I I have these reviews that I collected um, when I was working, and you know they're the kind of reviews that I frame and I put on my wall. And when I'm 80 years old and have grandchildren, I'm going to be like, you know, that one time the reader said that my performance was flawless, and they're like, oh my god, Grandma, you've told us a million times, <laughs> and now, and I'm going to hang on to that because that's work yeah. that I'm really, really proud of. Sure. Um, I, you know, even though I did that work with really abusive people that work was mine it was my performance I did it and I'm very proud of it um but I just don't feel like I can open myself up emotionally the way that you're supposed to do to act Uh, again I just don't feel safe doing that um so I've been doing um aerial hoop and I've been dancing which is nice because it's helping me kind of like reconnect with my body since I spent a lot of time out of my body um while I was you know being uh, abused and um so that's 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 helpful it's helpful it's helping me realize that my body is a part of me and it can do good things and it can sometimes feel good and not just feel awful yes and that you don't have to feel as vulnerable in your body right yeah if I'm if I'm strong enough to to you know to pull my big butt up in the air and onto a big metal hoop then I can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a that's a good quote. I mean, the the other quote that I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about your story, and I and I I feel like if there were to be a book about it, it would. I in my head I was picturing one day I joined a theater company, you know, like this, that's where <laughs> it started, and then it just became all of this because of who was in charge, and so yeah. What's the takeaway for you? I mean, what, how, how can you guide people about what to watch out for? Because there were things that you noticed that you had to ignore in order for you to keep your career and be able to support yourself, et cetera. But so now the red flag. So teach us what you've learned. Okay. Yes. Before we even get to red flags, yeah. I want to say that there's this idea that people have that there's a, like, I, like we were talking about at the beginning, that there's a certain amount of bad behavior that's allowed or accepted or tolerated because somebody is just such an amazing yes. in the blank, amazing right. director, amazing writer, whoever yeah. it is. I'm glad you're coming back to that. Yeah. Um, but that's, excuse me, like it's bullshit for mm-hmm. every art so-called artistic genius who mistreats the people around them Mm -hmm. there are 10 equally talented people 
who are not psychopaths, find them and work with them. You literally do not need to sacrifice yourself at the altar of this bogus concept of genius. Oh, that's very powerful. I'm so glad you said that. You just don't need to. I did work with this theater company that I'm so proud of, but I but I sacrificed myself in order to do it. And I didn't need to. If I had listened to my gut and I had, I, if I had not made the choices that I had made and cause then I got sucked in and then I, it was very hard to get out. Then I could do equally powerful work with people who would not abuse me and who would not completely destroy me emotionally and physically. I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to suffer and nobody else needs to suffer. So important. I think so red flags would be things like not observing kind of industry standard practices. Like you always need to have a stage manager present. Always. That is what happens. Um, there should, you know, be, it's hard because in non-union, like the union has standards for what is acceptable professional behavior, but when you're not part of the union, which is very hard to, to get into and then to find work once you're in, um, at least in this market, um, it's, there are no standards. That's the wild west. Um, there is an organization called not in our house. Um, out of Chicago, which has um, developed a kind of code of conduct that theaters can voluntarily adopt. Um, and the idea is that it then kind of delineates, this is acceptable behavior, this is not acceptable behavior. And when somebody feels there is a problem, this is the process that they go through. And here are the steps that you need to take in order to address the problem which is really, really important because sometimes people think like, oh, we're wacky theater people and it's co- cool to tell off-color jokes. Well, you know, what somebody thinks is just kind of like funny and edgy, another person finds extremely hurtful or inappropriate or unsafe. So it's something that theaters can voluntarily adopt if they, if, if this is something that's important to them. And so it can be a really nice um, mark of a theater that takes this sort of seriously. If they adopt the Chicago um, code of conduct. Um, so right. and not only does it give you kind of tools for what to watch out for, but then tools to know what to do about it. Exactly. Which is key because it's all well and good to be like, this is inappropriate behavior, but if without a path, right. you're still stuck in the, well, I don't want to upset anybody and I don't want to be difficult. Right. And I don't know who to call and who exactly. to talk to about it. Right. Okay. Go ahead. So what yeah, else? No, so so that's so that's a good thing if you could if your um, theater has something like the the code of conduct um, from Not in Our House and anybody who's interested can just Google Not in Our House um, and you know you can work with them to see if the code of conduct can be for your theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, just also trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, if something feels inappropriate. Um, talk to other people. Don't be isolated um, because that's how it thrives is by people not talking about it and not speaking up. I mean, the only reason that I was just, I was just called a cunt and screamed at and brought to tears every single night for years is because nobody said, dude, we're trying to rehearse. Come on, like save that for afterwards. Mm-hmm. 
nobody ever said like, come on, man, like, can we just do the run the scene again? I, that's really all that it would have taken to, 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 to put a stop to that behavior. But no one said anything because they were, they didn't want to make a fuss or because that was their boss that was doing it. Mm. Um, but literally sometimes all it takes is just saying, just saying something that simple, like, oh, come on guys, can you argue after rehearsal? Right. Yeah, that they don't even need to come to your defense, but they are by kind of snapping them out of it. And right, right, and and they're showing that they've noticed <laughs> exactly, and that it's not okay. But when nobody says anything, then that then the abuser takes that as approval to just steamroll everybody, the victim mm-hmm. and everybody else in the room. Wow. Okay. So, anything else um, you want people to know about or? find um yeah so just yeah i would encourage people if they're in theater to check out not in our house um and that'll even if they're not looking at necessarily theaters that work with that code of conduct it it can give you a really good idea about what is appropriate behavior and what's not so that you know what what to look for and what to try to avoid right yeah i think that's it okay well i i Thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that um, it was years in the making, so you had to kind of narrow it down for just a short amount of time. And I know that's not an easy thing to do, but it's so powerful the way you not only let us hear your story, but just really not having or not feeling like you had alternative, that you had choices, that you had other places to go or other means of support. And it's such an important message for the families, for the bystanders, for the others to jump in and to say, I'll, I'll be there for you, or you can come to my house, or if you need someone to talk to, here's my number. Just those moments are so powerful. I think people don't realize. Yeah. And, you know, there were a lot of people who came to me later once the article came out and said like, oh, I didn't know it was happening. And I'm like, you were there. Yeah. And so I really feel that it's important for people to speak up when they see something wrong. Because, you know, if you see something wrong, then behind the scenes is probably a hundred times worse. And it just doesn't, it really doesn't take much to, to stop something bad happening as you're seeing it, even by saying something as simple as, again, you know, hey, let's talk about that after rehearsal. And then you're also telling the, the victim that, like, I'm a safe person and you can talk to me if you need to. Yeah, Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I I wish only good things for you and for your son and all the other people who you welcome into your life who are safe and good and support you for your strengths and who you are and who you want to be. Thank, thank you. you so much, Rachel. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Take You're care. Welcome. Okay, bye-bye. One more thing before you go. While there were so many topics we covered, it was actually difficult to narrow down what I wanted to talk about today, but I decided to focus on the fact that Megan at some point just had to get out. And I'm always interested in knowing how people get to that point and what the catalyst becomes for them to make a change when they didn't feel they could make before for so many reasons or for so long. It's the subject that a lot of people who have loved ones in bad situations ask me about. What will it be? What will be the moment that will cause them to open their eyes about the situation they're in or the relationship they're in? 
What will be the thing that pushes them over the edge where they will see they need out and hopefully then come home again? And what do people need to be shown or even experience in order to leave? And then when they know they need to go, what do they need to take those first steps towards freedom? Everyone has a different breaking point. That point when you sometimes realize what you're made of and what strength you have that kicks in, that is part of your survival mechanism. But sometimes people judge themselves when they reach their breaking point because they don't see it as an opportunity to find out what they're made of, but rather what they think they're not made of. Why can't they handle the stress anymore and that life anymore when other people seem to? Why can't they just deal And why can't they just deal with suffering in this way, the way other people seem to, no matter if the other people are also thinking about leaving but just have not said that out loud, which is often the case. So a breaking point is something that we will often judge in ourselves rather than seeing it as our body and our minds telling us enough. Sometimes you never know what that moment will be that will cause the greatest amount of stress And for some people, it is that they were pushed beyond what they could handle psychologically, physiologically, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And for others, it is what they could not tolerate letting happen to others in their lives. So while they could tolerate so much mistreatment, seeing their husband or their wife or their children or their parents or their siblings treated abusively or with disdain, dismissively or horribly or with neglect, and then being kept from being able to protect them from it, that becomes, for some people, their catalyst for change. They can do for other people, they can act for other people when they can't do or act for themselves. And that's not something to judge in yourself. Actually, it's very often the case that that becomes the watershed moment. What's important to recognize is that if you are at a point where you can't sleep, you can't rest your mind, you can't get out of a fog, you can't think about a way out, you can't concentrate, and you've started to isolate and become less social and depressed and anxious, and you can't quite make things make sense anymore in your mind, where all the justifications for this kind of life that worked before that you had used as reasons to stay and had accepted as reasons to stay in this bad situation, no longer are working and making sense. And also when there is a disconnect between the life you were made to feel you would have by being involved in that relationship or in that company or in that religion or whatever it is, and the life you're actually living, in noticing the gap between what you were promised and what has actually been given to you or not so far, That can be the breaking point for some. Some people who have left very bad situations have told me that reaching a certain age was the catalyst, that it was at that moment that they became reflective and looked back and thought about where they thought they were going to be when they reached that age. And they saw either how far they were from it or how the person or people they were with were keeping them from reaching those milestones. And for other people, the catalyst is that they have a moment that strikes them. And it's one that sometimes we can't predict and we can't plan that shows them what their life is really like. Some of you may have heard this story, but there was an intervention that I was participating in a few years ago where my team and I were meeting with a woman who was basically an indentured servant in the home of the leader of a religious cult. And we were finally getting the chance to have a conversation with her about her life 
and to offer her some information that we had about the leader and about the group that we knew she didn't have. And we were hoping that it would help her see that this is not the life she needed to be living. We had prepared so much for that moment and done so much research and worked with her family to find just the right way to talk to her that would help her feel comfortable and safe with us. But no matter how well-planned and or scholarly our information was, the thing that woke her up was an unplanned and random moment. She got up from where she was seated at one point during our day together and was trying to make her way along a number of chairs that were hard to slide under the big table because the floor was carpeted. And I saw her struggling while I was sitting at the opposite side of this very long table in kind of an awkward conference room space we were able to use. And I asked if everything was okay. And she said she was trying to make her way over to my side of the room to make herself some tea. There was some hot water for coffee and tea on the table right behind me. And I said, oh, it's okay. I'm happy to make tea for you. What kind of tea do you like and what do you like in it? I didn't even think about the question. And while she was pushing yet another chair in under the table to be able to walk behind it, as I asked her that question, I saw her suddenly stop moving. She was still, with her hands placed on the back of the chair and her back still bent over a bit because she was in the process of pushing in this chair. Her body froze. So I asked her again, is she okay? And she said she thought she was, but she needed to sit down. So I asked her again if I could make her some tea. And she said, I just need a minute. She sat back down in her chair, placed her hands on her knees, and looked down at the table in front of her, I think, kind of expressionless. So my colleagues and I just started chatting with each other, so there wasn't an awkward silence in the room that would kind of make her feel uncomfortable while she sat there quietly. And when she was done with however much time she needed, she joined our conversation, still not having any tea, but she dropped the subject, so I dropped it too. And that night she came to talk to us and she said, I don't think I need to hear any more about this group and about the leader. I think I just needed to have that moment today of having someone offer me something, to offer to take care of me, to ask me what I wanted, and to seem to be happy, kind of nonchalant, about providing something for me. I realized in that moment that in the 12 years I have devoted myself to this group and in servitude to the leader, I have never been taken care of. No one took care of me when I was sick. No one defended me when I was berated for not doing things perfectly. And no one ever offered to make tea for me. I have to admit, I was so startled by your question because I realized those were words I had not heard for 12 years. That was a question I hadn't been asked. And I had a rush of so many things that I couldn't move. I had a rush of sadness, anger, confusion, not feeling deserving, wondering if there would be a consequence for accepting your offer, wondering suddenly if you knew the leader and this was a test that had been set up by him and I was going to fail it, and then also feeling a sudden warmth, a feeling of childhood, I guess, and 
of being home and cared for. So my colleagues and I looked down at all the notes and files and books we had brought with us and realized they were kind of no longer needed. And one of my colleagues said, so how about now? Want some tea? And she said, yeah, please. That would be really nice. So in her situation, being taken care of was the catalyst, the moment her eyes opened. So you sometimes don't know what it's going to be and what moment is going to have the kind of impact that it has. So for anyone listening who has started to feel on edge and is underslept and under enormous stress without a break and always pushed to do more and do it perfectly and under constant pressure or has been made to feel like their level of value is only based upon how much they do and sacrifice for the other people around them and not based on just being a human being in this world. And if you're just getting tired of being tired and being tired of it all, or afraid of how often you're being made to feel afraid, and you feel equally scared by the thought of leaving and by the thought of staying, then you are nearing or are at your breaking point. And please try not to believe what you've been told, that your thought about leaving or your sudden lack of faith and devotion is something to be embarrassed about, something to look down upon, or proof that you're weak and can't handle what other people around you seem to be able to handle, or you're not as spiritual or not as gifted or whatever. It's not a moment where you need to prove something about yourself to the other people around you, to somehow prove that you can keep tolerating suffering it's a time to prove something to yourself, that when you get to that point where you feel like you've put up with enough or even far too much, you show yourself that you can act on your own behalf. Feel grateful, not ashamed, that you have a survival instinct that has clicked back on. Sometimes it starts screaming in your ear, but sometimes it's just a faint whisper. Listen anyway and take it seriously no matter the volume, and let it guide you. And for all others listening who know of someone in a situation like this, people will very often not leave if they feel they have nowhere to go. So one of the best and most important gifts you can give people is reminding them any way you can that they have a place. They have a place outside the group. They have a place to go outside their relationship. And after they have finally broken through the barriers that have kept them stuck, or if they were kicked out and just feel like they have just been pushed off the side of a cliff and they are free falling, offer them a safe place to land. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.